it was my neighbor who came knocking on my door to tell me that the police was looking for me. And I, I didn't know why would the police be looking for me. So I go outside to look for the police because I wanted to know why was they looking for me. And when I got out there, an officer pulled up and I stopped. He gets out of his vehicle and he tell me that he had been told to come pick me up and bring me down to the station because some officers wanted to ask me some questions. And I said, well, can you tell me what it's about? He said, no. So we drive down to the police station. He put me in the back of the car. When we get there, and they started reading me my rights. And I don't know where it's going. I'm I'm waiting on them to tell me I got a ticket out or something that I just don't know about. They ended up telling me I'd been charged with capital murder. My name is Anthony Graves, and I'm an exoneree. I spent 18 and a half years in prison, 12 and a half years on Texas death row all for a crime I knew absolutely nothing about. Huh, I didn't realize That's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think the... you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Anthony Graves is one of 3,000 Americans who've been exonerated since 1989. That may not sound like a lot, but those are only the people who've gotten the court to overturn their convictions and recognize their innocence. That process is so long and difficult. There are likely thousands more innocent people still in prison. Some may even have been executed for crimes they didn't commit. This hour, we're taking a look at how the American justice system can make such a big mistake. Can wrongful convictions be avoided? Or are they just the price we pay to keep our communities safe? August of 1992. I was, I was a week from my 27-year-old birthday, so I was 26. The night before Anthony Graves was arrested, a woman, her daughter, and four grandchildren were gruesomely murdered, and their house set ablaze. But Graves had an alibi. I was snoring my girlfriend's face all night. So I had family who was right there beside me at 2.30 in the morning that could tell you exactly where I was. And it was in another town. I didn't even go to the town that this crime had happened in. Didn't know nobody. People didn't know me. So how did police end up arresting Graves? Well, they had a suspect in custody who confessed to the murders, but the detectives were convinced he had an accomplice. They started interrogating him over 14 hours. They asked him for a name. And he thought he had seen me earlier. He just called my name thinking they would let him go because they told him that. But what they did, once he called my name, they asked him for a story. He gave him about seven or eight different stories. Then when he, I guess, gave one that, fit their theory, they turn around and charge him with capital murder. And then they come after me. Uh, he was married to a cousin of mine, but I didn't know him. I knew his name. Graves was charged with the murder and went to jail, where he eagerly awaited the day he would be able to prove his innocence in court. But it took two and a half years for his case to get to trial. They kept putting it off and putting it off. And I'm begging, give me the trial because I just want to get to trial so that the Two can be told I can go home. I do not belong in no jail. I'm a good person. So being innocent, you're naive. You're thinking that justice will prevail. You just need to tell the truth. They moved me to another county that was known for racism. They, they stacked my jury with practically all-white jurors. I'm sitting beside my attorney. The judge asked the foreman for the verdict, and he passed him a piece of paper. And then the judge looked at the piece of paper, then he asked everybody to stand up, me and my attorney. And then he told me I had been convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. And I, I just had no energy at that point because I had spent so much energy for that moment, the last two and a half years, waiting on that moment, waiting on justice to prevail. And then when I heard the verdict, I was just exhausted. I, I couldn't even respond. And just tears just started coming down my face because I could not believe a system that I believed in all my life is doing me like this for nothing. Just because somebody called my name. If you just do any kind of investigation, you realize that person don't even know me. He couldn't even tell you what my nickname is on the street. He, he had never even had a conversation with me. After his conviction, Anthony Graves entered solitary confinement on death row in Texas. What is your hell like when you think about hell? Because when you think about hell, whatever that is like to you, I live that every day. 
after 6,640 days of my life, just sitting there in a cell, in a six by nine case, no telephone, no television, full steel walls closing in on you every day. You hear young men screaming, they're hanging themselves, they're, they're dropping their pills, they're putting them on medication to have them walking around like zombies. People are executed around me, 403. That's what they exposed me to. While Graves languished on death row, his family suffered outside the prison walls. He had three young children. Kids are not uh, nice to each other, you know? And so you had kids at school that was talking about their dad. And it was just a, it was just a nightmare. It was just a real nightmare for them. It's like a ripple effect. It affects everyone that's, uh, that, that they care for you. And so, you know, my mom, my children, my, my siblings had to walk around a town that believed that their loved one was guilty of murder. And it wasn't true. But for 18 and a half years, that's how the world treated them. Uh, And so they dealt with it differently. I, I I didn't communicate with my siblings, some of my siblings, for over the whole time I was down there because they did not, they could not adjust to their brother being in prison, knowing that he's innocent. They could not deal with that. His wrongful imprisonment was financially devastating for the family, too. They knew Graves would need a great defense to win, but that would cost. So his mother took an early retirement from the job she had worked more than 20 years, cashed out her retirement plan, and used the money to hire an expensive investigator recommended by the court-appointed attorney on the case. But... I never once seen my investigator. Never once seen a man that we paid to investigate this. And then his mother's employer wouldn't rehire her for a whole year because the community believed her son was a murderer. And yet, Graves says he never lost hope. He wrote letter after letter in an attempt to get his conviction overturned. A series of attorneys affiliated with the Innocence Project took up his case. A decade into Graves' time on death row, the prosecutor who'd put him there retired, and an appeals court ruled that prosecutor had withheld evidence that could have helped Graves prove his innocence. The judge ordered a new trial for Graves, and the new prosecutor offered a deal instead. If Anthony would plead guilty to the murders, they would let him go free. He said no. I'm not going to compromise the truth. That's just that. You could no longer threaten me with death. I mean, if you're talking about believing in God and going to heaven, you got to die first. So understanding the process, why would you be afraid? I'm standing up for what's right. And if I need need to lose my life to stand on what's right so that my kids and nobody else can go through what I've just gone through, then I'm willing to do that. Because at the end, it's not even about me. It's a bigger picture. It's about inhumanity versus humanity. And I want humanity to win out. So if I admit sacrificing my life for that, I was willing to do that. I was not going to compromise. So Graves stayed in jail for two more years while the new prosecutor came to the conclusion that instead of retrying Anthony for murder, he should be exonerated. The news came as a complete surprise for Graves when an officer knocked on his cell door one day in 2010. And I looked at him, he said, come go with me, put your shirt on, come on and go with me. And I I figured, okay, well, it must be an attorney visit. But I noticed that we're walking to the front of the building, and I'd never been up there before. But when we got in there, one of my attorneys stood up, and I could tell that she was batting back tears. She was trying to hold her tears. And I'm thinking in my mind, that's just some more bad news. And she looked at me, and she said to me, she said, Anthony, you remember when you told me that God was good? Well, I just want you to know that God is good, man, because the state just dismissed all the charges against you, and because they believe in your innocence. And I looked at it, and I was like, well, like, what, what do I do now? Here it is, you're telling me that it's over? After all this time, just like that, it's over? It's hard for me to believe. And, and I say, hey, man, just let me get my legal stuff and my pictures, and then let's just go, because I don't want nobody to change their mind, right? And they escorted me out the side door of the jail. And, and so my attorney gets on the phone, and she calls my mother. 
And so you have to understand, so my mother and I had been out, when I was in jail, I was able to call her, collect. So we had been talking on the phones, and I had been always, every time I talked to her, I would ask her, hey, what you cooking? So when we was out in the parking lot, and my attorney called my mom, and she gets on the phone, I hear her voice. She said, hello. And I said, mom. She said, who is this? I said, it's your son. She said, what? I said, what you cooking? She said, why? And that was the first time in 18 and a half years I was able to tell my mother, because I'm on my way home. I'm on my way home. And that was that, you know, 20 minutes later, I was in uh, my mother's uh, yard. And it was the first time in 18 and a half years I got a chance to hug my mom. And then I got a chance to hug my son. Uh, it was a lot of people out in the streets, like a big parade, because everybody had heard, news had broke. All the people that was cheering for me on the sidelines were out there in my mom's yard. It was just, I mean, like the whole town had came out to the point where I was just overwhelmed because I hadn't had human touch in 18 and a half years. And now everybody's around me and shaking my hand and hugging me. And it's like, I'm overwhelmed. Now I have to find out how to navigate this thing called life out here in this free world. You know, I made it look easy. I put a smile on my face and everybody seen that and they seen me speaking and talking and then everybody said, oh, he good. No, I wasn't. I was crying on my balcony at night, not knowing if I could make it out here. Two, three o'clock in the morning. I didn't have a, I didn't have no routine. I didn't have no best friend. I didn't have no favorite place to hang out. I had no one to call at two, three o'clock in the morning. I was starting over. I was starting over. The whole world had moved on without me. And now I'm back out here and you just dropped me off like in a maze and I have to try to figure it out now. Nobody understood the, the PTSD I was dealing with. Hell, I didn't even know. It's now been 12 years since Anthony Graves was released and he's been able to find some purpose in what he's been through. I've committed my life to reforming the system through the power of my story. I crisscrossed this globe, sharing my story. I'm a motivational speaker now. I've spoken in front of Congress. Uh, I, I'm actually working at the Harris County Public Defender's Office. I'm the community liaison now. So can you imagine? I'm working for the same system that tried to take my life. I'm just here to make it better. Are you angry? No, no, I've never been angry. What does anger do? It, it kills you on the inside. That's, that's, that's not wise to be angry. I don't hold it against anyone. This I'm not the first person that this happened to. And I'm not going to be the last as long as we keep the same system. So I don't hold it against anyone. What I need to do is make sure that people understand that a system that has been unjust to people like me since I've been here is still the same system. And we need to make change. How did you maintain faith in God in, instead of thinking that he'd abandoned you all those years? Because God didn't do this to me. Man did. God was that sustaining me and seeing and, 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 and helping me get through it and dealing with it. God gave me a choice as to how I'm going to respond to the injustice that occurred in my life. I could be negative about it or I could be positive about it and go out here and make a difference on this side of it. I decided that I was going to take what has happened to me and be positive about it and come out here and share it with the rest of the world, articulate it in a way that will move people for change. That's Anthony Graves, who served 18 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. He was exonerated and released in 2010. His book is Infinite Hope, How Wrongful Conviction, Solitary Confinement, and 12 Years on Death Row Failed to Kill My Soul. How do innocent people end up behind bars in a system that promises everyone is innocent until proven guilty? It's impossible to prevent it in a system that is populated and run by human beings. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The National Registry of Exonerations says Anthony Graves is just one of more than 3,000 innocent people who've been convicted and then exonerated since 1989. The time those people spent wrongfully imprisoned adds up to 30,000 years. 30,000 years lost because of mistakes and sometimes misconduct in the justice system. And those are just the instances we know about. Criminal defense attorney David Rudolph has helped a number of innocent people win exoneration in high-profile cases. And yet he is willing to defend the system overall. I don't think there's any doubt 
that it gets it right a lot more than it gets it wrong. The problem is when you're processing this many cases, getting it wrong in even a small percentage uh, ends up with huge uh, actual numbers. Wrongful convictions may be inevitable, says Rudolph, but that doesn't mean they're acceptable. I don't think we have to ever accept it, but I think we have to recognize the reality that we can't completely eliminate it. That's not to say that there's not a lot of things we can do to make it much less likely. The trouble is, says Rudolph, the American justice system is not good at acknowledging its mistakes, let alone fixing them. There is a great uh, presumption for finality in our system. Finality trumps truth and justice when the two conflict. Uh, And most judges don't want to, as they put it, open the floodgates by exonerating somebody. Uh, And so the value of of finality in our system uh, is is elevated to almost a, a, you know, a deity. I'll give you an example. When a plane crashes, um, the National Transportation Safety Board comes in and they do a soup to nuts investigation, uh, a, a review uh, of what went wrong, why it went wrong, how can we prevent this in the future? Uh, that's the only way you improve systems uh, and, and cut down on the repetitive sorts of, of problems that create uh, things like airplane crashes or medical uh, misdiagnoses. We never do that with a wrongful conviction. We need to recognize that having a criminal justice system that works and that's fair uh, is in everybody's interest. You know, you should care about this because if the system gets it wrong, uh, A, it may be your relative or your husband or your son uh, or your loved one who ends up being imprisoned for something they didn't do. You should care because if you're the victim of a crime or you know someone who's been the victim of a crime, you want to make sure that the right person uh, is, uh, is the person who's convicted, not the wrong person. And you should care because if you're a citizen in a community, you want to be protected. Uh, and if the wrong person is convicted, if an innocent person is convicted, then the guilty person is out there able to prey on you going forward. And so I don't understand why there's so much, um, oh, I don't know, uh, resistance to figuring out what went wrong. Time and again, Rudolph has seen the same mistakes by police and prosecutors lead to wrongful conviction. His new book, which is called American Injustice, explores common errors in a number of high-profile cases. Consider the story of Tim Bridges in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1989. On Mother's Day, uh, a elderly woman is brutally raped and murdered in her house. Uh, just a horrible, horrible crime. And there had been a series of rapes in that neighborhood, so all the neighbors are up in arms. There's a lot of publicity. Uh, you know, it's a typical sort of case where there's a lot of pressure on the police and prosecutors to try to solve this, to, to make everybody feel better. Before the victim dies, she's able to give a vague description of her attacker. White man, medium build, long blonde hair. And police find two strands of hair at the scene. That is all they've got, which is not much when you consider how popular long hair was for guys in the 1980s. So the pool of suspects in the city is huge. Right, right. Hundreds of people. So um, they start bringing in people who have been arrested for some sort of sex crime. None of them match. None. Um, but there's a lot of pressure. And so they, they keep putting pressure on people in the neighborhood. Uh, and uh, one day they get a phone call from somebody's dad uh, who says, oh, my son says that uh, Tim Bridges confessed to him that he killed this woman. So they immediately go to that person. Uh, and he says, no, 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 no. I didn't, he didn't confess to me. I heard on the street that he was the guy. Um, Where did you hear it? So-and-so told me. So they go to so-and-so. And that person says, no, 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 no. I didn't hear him confess. I heard that on the street. And so what they've got initially 
is several people saying they heard on the street that it was Tim Bridges. The police know Tim Bridges. He's been arrested on prostitution before. And he has the long hair they're looking for. But all they've got on him is a rumor. So... The police decide that these people are hiding something, you know, that they know more than they than they're letting on. Uh, and so they arrest one of them uh, for uh, some sort of a crime involving the prostitution. Uh, and, you know, the story then goes that uh, if you if you tell us the truth about Tim Bridges, uh, you know, we'll help you on your case. And so that person now it changes from I heard it on the street to Tim Bridges told me. Giving someone an incentive to testify like that is incredibly tempting for police and generally legal, says Rudolph. It's also one of the most common mistakes that contribute to wrongful conviction. Word gets around in the jail that the police uh, are really looking for evidence against so-and-so. And and someone decides, well, you know, uh, I'll say he did it uh, if I can get uh, my charges dismissed. Uh, And so they send word that so-and-so admitted to them and the police come and there's a negotiation. You know, I'll give you this information if you do X for me. And sometimes it's explicit and sometimes it's implicit. Um, But the deal is the deal and everybody knows it. If you give up the information that the police are looking for, you're going to get a benefit. It happened in Tim Bridges' case. So now police have three people willing to testify that Tim Bridges confessed to them. But the district attorney needs more to take the case to trial. So Rudolph says the next big mistake was turning to science that wasn't well established. They had discovered two hairs at the scene. And the detective goes to the hair examiner and basically says, can you take a look at this hair and tell me if you can match it? to Tim Bridges. And again, there's this enormous uh, institutional bias uh, for this hair examiner who works with these detectives all the time to try to help them. And so the hair examiner comes back and finds a match. He says it's a thousand to one that uh, this hair came from anyone other than Tim Bridges. Based on that, They indict Tim and they convict him. And Tim ends up spending in excess of 20 years in prison. But at some point, the FBI realizes that its own hair analysts have been making critical mistakes in calling matches for decades. So there's a scandal uh, that gets a lot of publicity. And as a result of that, Tim was exonerated. Uh, You know, he ended up suing the hair examiner and the detective, who, by the way, in her file, had a sticky note saying that so-and-so had confessed to this rape and was in another jail. Rudolph says the detective never interviewed that person on the sticky note who confessed because police had been so sure Tim Bridges was guilty. They developed tunnel vision. This is the story that repeats itself time and time and time again. Are they doing it on purpose? No, I don't think, I don't think they thought that Tim Bridges was, was innocent, you know, but they decided in their own minds, he, he, he's the guy, he's our guy. And once they reach that conclusion, it becomes a suspect-based investigation. And by that, I mean an investigation that is searching for evidence to implicate a particular person, as opposed to an evidence-based investigation that is simply looking for evidence to explain what may have happened. And when when an investigation turns from a fact investigation to a suspect-based investigation, we're in trouble. Now that we have DNA analysis, are we seeing less of these kind of pseudoscience, blood spatter, hair matching kinds of things being used in court? No, we're actually seeing more of it. Over the last 30 years, there has been an explosion, a cottage industry of so-called forensic experts. They're not scientists for the most part. They're not trained in any kind of science. They're police officers who develop 
alleged expertise based on experience. Uh, and so, and it's called pattern evidence. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, uh, qualifications that have to be passed. They don't have to, they don't have to show any kind of competency. Um, you know, basically they come into court uh, they say, yeah, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've testified before judges 150 times. I'm sure of this to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty, although they're not scientists, and they're allowed to testify. Now, DNA analysis is legitimate and can help prevent the wrong person from getting convicted. In fact, many exonerations have come because DNA analysis on an old crime scene sample shows the person convicted for the crime is not a match. But, says Rudolph, most cases don't have any DNA to collect or analyze. Think about gun violence or theft. And he's worried that even DNA analysis has gotten away from its most reliable form. And we now get into, quote, mixtures of DNA uh, and algorithms that uh, are used to decide whether a particular DNA mixture may belong to a certain person. And now we're getting into tracing back you know, generations on the father's side, it's getting more and more subject to interpretation uh, than it used to be. Another common thread in wrongful convictions, says Rudolph, is police and prosecutors withholding evidence that could point to someone's innocence. Now, legally, they're required to hand stuff like that over to the defense. But when they're building a case, they don't really have an incentive to volunteer information that could help the other side. The only incentive is that there's a constitutional obligation, and if they take their their duties as officers of the court seriously, as I hope most of them do, they will turn it over. But there's certainly uh, no way of uh, enforcing that uh, at the front end. More often, says Rudolph, it's after an innocent person has already spent years in prison that attorneys are able to discover the police or the prosecutor held back information that could have prevented the wrongful conviction. Those discoveries often lead to exoneration, but only after the person has spent years behind bars. And then there are the wrongful convictions that happen without a trial even taking place. More than 90% of criminal convictions in America happen through a plea bargain. But why would an innocent person confess to a crime they did not do? Here's how it it goes down. Uh, Somebody is charged with a murder. Uh, They're facing a death penalty or they're facing life in prison without parole. Uh, And their lawyer comes to them and says, listen, uh, you know, the prosecutor says that if you'll plead guilty to second degree, uh, he'll recommend to the judge that the judge sentence you to 10 years. Uh, And you've been in for a year and a half. And with good time, you'll be out in six or seven years. What do you think? And it's pretty hard for somebody in that situation, particularly if they're a minority Uh, particularly if uh, they're in an area uh, where uh, minorities uh, don't serve on many juries, uh, to resist that sort of pressure. As a result, minorities and people with limited resources have a higher risk of wrongful conviction, and not just in big cases involving crimes like murder. Rudolph says for misdemeanors like petty larceny, a person who can't afford bail faces enormous pressure to confess. In that situation... Uh, it's pretty hard for someone to say, well, I can get out of jail today, but no, I don't want to do that. I think I'd rather fight for my innocence uh, and, uh, and, and stay in jail for another six months in order to prove that I didn't do this. It's a tough trade. They confess to gain their freedom, but now they have a criminal record for something they did not do. Rudolph says he has been encouraged in the last decade to see elected prosecutors in big cities like San Francisco, L.A., Philadelphia, New York, talking openly about making changes. Where they're basically saying, we see some problems in the system, we want to correct them, uh, as opposed to running on a law and order platform. Uh, and, and voters need to understand that just because somebody is is running on a law and order platform does not mean that they are going to be the best person to operate the criminal justice system if we're going to avoid mistakes and wrongful prosecutions and wrongful convictions. That's criminal defense attorney David Rudolph. His book is called American Injustice. Rudolph paints a bleak picture of police work, but there are officers out there eager to get it right. 
We spoke to a Florida sheriff who's made it his mission. But I've witnessed injustice by police officers all my life. All of those in interactions reinforced uh, my desire to be in law enforcement to do something about it. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Leon County is in the Florida panhandle. It's home to Tallahassee, the state capital, and it's home to a sheriff with a surprising position on law and order. Quite honestly, my perspective is that I'd much rather have a person uh, not be convicted, that we could not uh, get enough evidence or couldn't prove it than to have the wrong person convicted. Walt McNeil has been sheriff of Leon County since 2016. Before that, he spent a decade as the chief of the Tallahassee Police Department, and he's a former president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And let's just reiterate here, Sheriff McNeil would prefer to have a guilty person go free than risk a wrongful conviction. Absolutely, yes. I had uh, a uh, domestic uh, case, but uh, we thought that uh, the husband did it. We didn't have enough evidence to prove it. And... uh, and uh, we, you know, we still believe he did it, but, uh, uh, but we don't have enough to prove it. So we can't go out and manufacture stuff uh, simply because we we believe that he did it. I would be terrified that that person would go and do something again. Absolutely. And, and that is why you have, in my opinion, uh, so much or have had so many of the wrongful conviction cases because of the frustration you just talk about is that... Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to walk away from those cases when you really believe uh, that the person committed a crime. Now, to understand Sheriff McNeil's position on this, on the risks of getting it wrong in police work, we need to go back a bit. I grew up in Chicago in the 60s doing integration, and uh, the high school bus that I was on was uh, taking us black kids over to uh, the middle school, and uh, the white police stopped our bus and came on with uh, billy clubs and tear gas to stop us from going to the school that we were uh, getting on the bus to uh, to go. And uh, they maced it down or uh, pepper gassed it, whatever, whatever stuff was back in the day. A couple weeks later, McNeil ran into a black police officer and asked him why those other officers treated the kids on the bus like that. He said, boy, this is the way it is today. And uh, when you grow up, maybe you can do something about it. From that age of 12, I decided I want to be a police officer and do something about it. And as faith would have it, after serving uh, 10 years as a police chief in Tallahassee, Governor Charlie Chris at the time asked me if I would come and work in the Department of Corrections. And uh, when I got there uh, is when I learned and started to focus on wrongful convictions. Uh, The number of persons in prison Wrongly, wrongfully convicted was staggering. From then on, McNeil resolved to prevent wrongful convictions. While head of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, he organized the group's first ever national summit on the issue. And he's trained police departments all around the country. The first thing he teaches is how to make sure they're not leading an eyewitness to make a false identification. When presenting photos of possible suspects to a witness... McNeil says the police investigator working on that case should not be present. Because they are so invested uh, sometimes in their case, uh, they, they'll, they'll facial change or their uh, body language or the, the, the twit in their eye. I mean, those are things that uh, witnesses inadvertently, the body language is speaking to them and hmm. you aren't aware of that. And so you can un, unintentionally uh, influence the person. And so we want to take all those human elements to the extent we can, those human tendency that we have out of the the, uh, circumstances altogether. The next potential pitfall for officers is confessions. Sheriff McNeil says police should always question how they got one. And there's a, you know, a thin line between, you know, getting a person to to confess and, and putting fear into that person to get the confession. He says sometimes an officer will arrest someone in the middle of the night and question them for hours and hours without giving them anything to eat or drink. Sheriff McNeil insists his officers do the opposite. Let the person know that he or she has a right to have an attorney there. And uh, if they ask for one, you get them there. 
and then you try to make sure that uh, you make that person as comfortable as you possibly can. No fear. Uh, in our case, you want to bring in another, another person in uh, and witness what's taking place uh, so that uh, you don't have uh, conflicting uh, statements later on in the investigation. But the, the major thing is to make sure that uh, the person doesn't feel any fear. Uh, there's no uh, promises made. If you confess to this, you're only going to get two years. Uh, that you are as honest with the person as you possibly can about the crime that was committed and the circumstances uh, under which he's arrested. And uh, so that you aren't coercing that, particularly when you're talking about young persons, juveniles, uh, oftentimes they're afraid and simply are waiting for an opportunity uh, just to get out of that circumstance. And they'd confess to just about anything, thinking that they're getting out of the circumstance. Can you help me understand, though, um, why a police officer might be reluctant to do some of the things you just described that are best practices? If you've, as a deputy or officer, and you've uh, gone to a hideous uh, scene, and in your mind, you know that this person that, that you're interviewing committed the crime, and you just have made up in your mind that he or she did it, and, uh, and you get carried away, I, I would suspect, uh, just that investment uh, in, the, in the case itself, the 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 uh, horror and the uh, gruesomeness of the circumstances in which you're investigating, and as human beings, uh, you want some degree of justice. Uh, and here, the person you're sitting in front of, whose circumstances have led you to believe that uh, they committed the crime, and therefore uh, you do everything you can uh, to get the person convicted. Uh, police officers, uh, like everybody else, are human beings, and they get a uh, have a stake in, and sometimes in what the outcomes are. Is there also the risk that you run, though, that you had the perpetrator in your custody, but because you were being very careful not to coerce <laughs> um, or influence the eyewitnesses in any way, or the testimony, you know, the confession in any way, the te the the testimony. You end up letting that person go and then they, right? It seems like you could also run the risk of not effectively getting the person off the street because you were trying to be so careful about avoiding getting it wrong. My uh, direction to my staff is to do the very best you can in collecting the evidence and uh, let the evidence speak for itself. There's no need for us to do anything more than do a tremendously great job of collecting uh, testimony evidence, both physical uh, and uh, eyewitness information as much as we possibly can from the crime scene and give that to uh, our state attorney's office and let them then develop the, uh, uh, the process by which they then prosecute that case. You are now an elected law enforcement official as a sheriff. How do you explain to voters that they should also prefer to have a guilty person go free than to have a wrongful conviction? Uh, I hope that if we, if we have a criminal justice system, then it, it must be a, a just system. And it is a greater injustice uh, to convict a person who did not commit the crime. Obviously, I want to catch everybody that's committed a crime. <laughs> everybody that's committed a crime whatsoever. Uh, that's our ultimate goal. But uh, if it means uh, we're going to fabricate a case uh, so that uh, somebody gets uh, put in prison as opposed to the right person, uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that this community I serve in uh, agrees with me that uh, we'd, we'd rather, much rather uh, not uh, convict somebody that uh, did not commit the crime. Does that mean that your community is a little bit less safe? No, no, I don't. I don't think that at all. The fact is that uh, uh, we our our clearance rate on our cases is probably higher than uh, the, the nation the national average. Clearance means that we made the arrest and uh, turn them over to the state attorney's office. 
That's Walt McNeil, sheriff of Leon County, Florida. So we've talked about the mistakes and sometimes even misconduct that happen on the police and prosecution side of a wrongful conviction. On the other side of the courtroom is the defense attorney. Now, if you're rich or famous, you are more likely to have a defense attorney with a lot of experience and a whole team of experts ready to argue your innocence. If you can't afford an attorney, you're still entitled to one. And that's where public defenders come in. They're appointed to your case and paid by the government. But it is far from a fair fight, says former public defender Emily Galvin Almanza. Prosecutors, she says, have the entirety of the police force at their disposal as an investigative agency. And they have the entirety of the forensics department in a given county or state at their disposal as their as their lab. And then they have access to a stable of experts that they can bring in to educate them on a case or to to testify for them on a case. Public defenders are expected to match that, but without the team resources. When Galvin Almanza became a lawyer, she felt called to public defense, even though she knew she'd be overworked, under-resourced, and often criticized for defending accused criminals. But the thing that made me able to sleep at night on the job was knowing I had done every single thing in my power. Um, to help a person not just disentangle from the legal system, but to move forward from it with their with their life as intact as possible. It's hectic. It is really hectic. Um, pretty much every day as a public defender, I was running around the courthouse, representing lots of people in lots of different courtrooms, juggling felonies, misdemeanors, probation violations, drug court cases, um, really, really disparate subject matter. Some cases that required a deep expertise of DNA technology, uh, some cases that required uh, the ability to build trust with community members and find out like who really stole a bunch of guns because it was not my client. Um, some days it was, you know, really intense work alongside children uh, who were accused as adults trying to convince prosecutors to either treat kids like kids or that they had the wrong kid. Um, so no two days are alike as a public defender. I think the biggest challenge though is for most defenders, we just have too many cases um, and there aren't enough people doing the job because public defenders don't get enough money to hire enough people to do the job. Galvin Almanza believes there would be fewer wrongful convictions if public defenders were better funded. They'd have more investigators to chase down evidence to prove a client's innocence. And they'd be able to present a more complete picture of the defendant's life and circumstances for a judge to consider. And it enables judges, rather than thinking reflexively within the bounds of the law, here is the crime and here is how I punish it, it enables them to think, here is this person and here are their circumstances, and here's how I can create a better outcome for our community. It, it lets them enter the, the conversation with a let's fix this mindset instead of a let's punish this mindset. What do you think has underpinned the decision as a society to not give more resources to public defense? People don't recognize the degree to which public defenders are actually more essential to the public safety conversation than police and prosecutors. Um, but in fact, think about it this way. Pretrial jailing increases crime rates after somebody has been jailed. Um, things that cause crime tend to be trauma, isolation, and lack of opportunity. Prisons are a hotbed of trauma, isolation, and lack of opportunity. So we've built a system that is actually making us significantly less safe. Public defenders have this unique place in the system. They have confidential access and loyalty to the person whose behavior is um, at issue in the conversation in the case. They can understand what's really going on with a person, understand that person's goals, priorities, challenges, needs, and they can create a tailored plan to address those challenges, needs, and goals. So that instead of slapping a Band-Aid or in fact making something worse with a jail cell, they are supporting a person to succeed. And we can help that person no longer be a risk to the people around them. We're improving that person's safety and the safety of everyone around them. You're de you're describing a public defender's office that does a lot more than write legal briefs, collect evidence, and show up to trial then, and hearings. All, all this other stuff is more like social work stuff, it sounds like. And that and, and that's something that, that belongs in the public defender's office? Yeah, more and more we're seeing it in the public defender's office. Here's why. Ideally, when you take on the representation of a person, you're representing that person, not their case. 
And that person has a lot of challenges that go beyond the case. Some of those challenges may be drivers of their system involvement, and some of those challenges may be arising because of their arrest or system involvement. But either way, these are the things that matter to this person who you have sworn to defend. To help public defenders do that extra work, Galvin Almanza created a nonprofit called Partners for Justice. They place new college graduates into two-year paid positions with public defense offices around the country to do non-legal stuff a client needs. It might be arranging drug treatment or negotiating with an employer or landlord so that after the case is resolved, the client's life is still intact because it doesn't take a wrongful conviction for a person's life to be harmed. Just being wrongfully accused is devastating. We often say that the process is the punishment. And in many cases, that is so true. I saw a lot of just like cops getting it wrong um, as a public defender, much, much more than you would think. I mean, it was, it was not a rarity for me to be working on a case and for the defense investigator to find out what really happened, to attain the necessary video, to like go to the bodega that had the video that the cops said they tried to get and that didn't exist, that actually totally exists and totally exonerated my client. Yet my client may have been exposed to the trauma of arrest, booking, Rikers Island, like arraignment, like these terrifying processes, the stress of having an open criminal matter, whether you're in custody or out of custody, going to criminal court, defending yourself against a horrifying allegation, like that is massively traumatic. It can cost a person their job, their housing, custody of their children, access to benefits. It can sever their medical care. Any contact with the system is massively damaging. Even if there's a defender like me in place to find that video and to force the police to get it right, um, harm has still been done even if the person was not convicted. It's not like the prosecutor then goes back to your boss and your landlord and, you know, the family court judge is like, oh, actually, we totally got it wrong and this arrest was completely baseless and the police didn't even bother to get video. That never happens. Um, The best thing that happens from the other side is silence. Now, public defenders can't prevent police from arresting an innocent person. But Galvin Almanza says with enough resources, they can pressure prosecutors and judges to move the case quickly and minimize the damage. Getting someone through the process faster is massively important, as is preventing ultimate wrongful conviction. We are humans. We have decided that our legal system should be deeply and problematically human that we rely on human beings to make charging decisions and, um, you know, decisions of the law and judgments of fact. Um, It all comes down to a jury of 12 humans. So obviously human error is going to happen in the system. That being said, I think we could get a lot more right if we treated everyone the way we treat people of privilege. So what I mean by that is, think about the high-profile cases you have seen. Cases against very, very wealthy people. Cases against very high-profile people, politicians, public corruption cases, money laundering cases. Um, These are cases that are built against people slowly, that are developed um, with great care and, and attention to detail, and where the consequences to the person's life is constantly considered. When a wealthy person is is arrested, um, oftentimes they will have the option to come in of their own accord. They will get a call from their local police. They'll say, you know, we have this allegation. I'm afraid we need you to come in. You know, can we set a time to do that? Um, As opposed to, you know, for my clients, someone breaks down their door at five in the morning. Uh, Oftentimes on bad information, often at the wrong address. So what we've normalized is low-income people and black and brown people being treated as if they are disposable and constantly guilty and not being given the same care of investigation and consideration for their consequences in their life that people of privilege receive. So yeah, we could get just as much right and get a lot less wrong if we treated everybody like they had whiteness and money. Emily Galvin Almanza's passion on this issue is driven partly by her own experience getting in trouble with the law as a teenager. I was going through a lot of incredibly difficult stuff, um, and it resulted in some catastrophically bad behavior on my part, and there was substance use and various forms of misconduct going on. And um, 
ultimately, a lot of, you know, my behavior led to me getting arrested. And the thing about it is, when I stood in front of a judge to face my charges, the judge looked at me and looked for potential. I had been admitted to college very, very early. And this judge, who I have to give him credit, um, he was one of the most legendary advocates for children to ever sit on the bench in the state of Massachusetts. Um, so a lot of this is to his credit, and I believe that he treated all young people who appeared before him with this much grace and care. But I also acknowledge that as a young person who'd had the privilege of whiteness and, you know, a middle-class upbringing and access to education and access to college, um, I was standing before him with multiple privileges in place. And he, he called me up to the bench and he said, why are you here? You know, you've, you've been admitted to college. Um, what are you doing? And I don't even remember what I said. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm sure it was not uh, that great because I was 15. Um, and he said, look, I'm, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to dismiss these charges and I'm going to expunge this case. And you are going to still be able to go to college because, of course, my admission would have been rescinded had he not done that. Um, but I never want to see you again unless you've done something good with your life. And he let me go. So because of him, because, of his, because he looked at me and he saw my potential instead of my culpability, and he wanted to figure out how to fix the situation instead of figuring out how to punish me. Uh, because of that, I was able to go to college, I was able to graduate, I was able to work through all my demons, I was able to um, get into law school, I was able to graduate, I was able to pass the bar and become a public defender and like fight for people. And the thing is, once I got into that position of fighting for people in the public defense context, what I saw every day was judges looking at my largely low-income, largely black and brown clients and thinking about how to punish them and treating them as if their lives were disposable and never, look at, never searching for potential the way they had searched for potential in me. That's Emily Galvin Almanza. Prior to founding Partners for Justice, she worked as a public defender in Los Angeles, Santa Clara County, California, and the Bronx. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Ciara Hewlett and Olivia Young with help from me and Cleon Wall. We had music and sound design by Jacob Malaski, Jerem Hansen, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. We would love to have you subscribe and leave a comment or review wherever you listen to this podcast. That will help other people to find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.